Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we get going with today's episode, I just wanted to let you know about what's going to be going on with the last episodes of this podcast. This is going to be the penultimate one on Mary of Modena, with the last one coming next week. After that, I'm planning on doing one final episode, just looking back over the Tudor and Stuart Queens, comparing them to medieval ones, and seeing if we can come to any broad conclusions. I can't give you a date for that one, it depends when I can find time to get it all done during the Christmas and New Year period. Just keep an eye on the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, for updates. After that, well, I'll be keeping you posted on that as well, that there will be a podcast from me in the new year. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 66, Mary of Modena, The Warming Pan Baby. If you've 
been listening to this podcast for a while, you will know how important it was for a queen to give birth to a son. Queens have been abandoned, divorced, disgraced and died, all on the altar of providing an heir for England. And while that was hugely unfair on the women themselves, we have also seen the consequences of not giving birth to a clear heir. So many of England's worst crises over the last few centuries up to this point, the anarchy, the Wars of the Roses, even the English Reformation, have their roots in a succession crisis. For a queen, it was simple. Give birth to a couple of sons, and you are golden. Fail, and leave the kingdom with only daughters or nothing at all, and you are in trouble. But in the case of Mary of Modena and the birth of James Francis Edward Stuart, the complete opposite was true. As I talked about last time, James II's rule was unpopular, thanks partly to him being a pretty poor king, but also because of his Catholicism. But despite a couple of nasty rebellions, he seemed relatively secure on the throne for now, because his daughter from a previous marriage and successor, Mary Princess of Orange, was a Protestant. No one much cared that she was a woman in this case, her religion was the key. So long as that was the case, then the general consensus was that James's rule was something that had to be grinned and bared. And this seemed to be a pretty safe bet. James's wife Mary was 30 years old, so theoretically still able to bear children, but she had now lost 10 kids through a tragic combination of miscarriage, stillbirth and infant death. Her last pregnancy had ended in miscarriage in 1684. That was nearly five years ago. Surely nothing could upset this apple cart. Well, one person who was determined to do that was Mary herself. It seems that the pain of all of those lost children had done nothing but spur her on. She wanted to do her duty and give her husband a healthy child, and she would do anything to do so. Like her predecessor Catherine of Braganza, she visited places that were believed to have fertility properties, most famously the Somerset Spa town of Bath, in September 1687. She used what is known as the cross bath, a different one from the one used by her predecessor, and it was all quite the event. This was not a private bathing, for one thing her ladies were there with her, but also there were galleries above the bath that were filled with female spectators who watched excitedly as all these women, dressed in yellow, eased themselves into the hot water to the sound of an Italian string orchestra. It quickly became an item of popular entertainment as the curious public were eager to see the Queen and watch her try everything to improve her chances of having a child. James did his part too, ordering a former Catholic shrine in Wales to be reopened, one that Catherine of Aragon had famously prayed at while she was striving to give birth to an heir. And those waters seemed to have performed miracles, as at the very end of the year, it was announced that the Queen was pregnant. People's reactions varied wildly depending on where on the political spectrum they lay. Of course, for James, Mary and Catholic England, this was the news that they had been praying for. This was a son, for of course it would be a son, who could cement England's slow return to the Catholic fold. He was the hope that they had all been waiting for. But at the far end of fury lay people like James's daughter, Princess Anne. According to the Tuscan ambassador, who is one of our key witnesses for all that's about to happen, quote, No words can express the rage of the Princess of Denmark at the Queen's condition. She can dissimulate it to no one, and seeing that the Catholic religion has prospect of advancement, she affects more than ever, both in public and in private, to show herself hostile to it. And the most zealous of Protestants, with whom she is gaining the greatest power and credit at this conjuncture. Anne, helped along by her husband, George of Denmark, and other allies at court, started to spread vicious rumours about this pregnancy. Some said that it was all a lie. There is no pregnancy. 
James was far too old to be able to sire a child. But Mary's starting to show? Gasp! She is pregnant, but James cannot be the father. It must be Petra or some other Catholic scoundrel. How can they be so sure it'll be a son? It's a set-up! They're going to fake the whole thing! And so on. It was a hard pregnancy for Mary, and there were numerous times when it was feared slash hoped that she had miscarried. She often looked ashen-faced and was regularly in pain. But then, on the 10th of June 1687, Mary suddenly went into labour and gave birth to a healthy baby son. This, as everyone knew it would, caused an immediate crisis. Okay, so I've been trying very hard to keep the complexities of English politics on the eve of the so-called Glorious Revolution on the down-low so far, because they are super complicated and Mary of Modena wasn't much involved. But in the discussion of the birth of her son, it can't be avoided. So, here's a quick summary. James II, as I've said before, was a terrible leader. He shared, I think, a lot of qualities with his father, and is best described, in my mind, by historian Theo Aronson. Quote, He was a born second in command, entirely lacking in any qualities of leadership. What looked like strength of character was really weakness. He was direct when he should have been subtle, unyielding when he should have been dexterous, headstrong when he should have been patient. He was not a tyrant, it was simply that he lived in daily fear of rebellion. He was not a despot, rather he had a vision of himself as a firmly impartial, God-anointed father figure. He was not bigoted, he was mainly concerned with the removal of restrictions on Catholics and the introduction of religious toleration. Never short of enemies, James II was in many ways his own worst enemy. Now while I think Aronson goes a little too far into revisionism here on James... There is no doubt that history has not been kind at all to him, and that is simply because it was written by his enemies. I mean, just look at what they called the invasion and coup that overthrew him. The Glorious Revolution. So what were the complaints levelled at James? They said that he flaunted his Catholicism and wished to impose it on his people, and there was nothing that English Protestants feared more than a return to the bad old days of Mary Tudor. So while James merely sought the rather laudable goal of religious equality, the political elites only saw the spectre of the Inquisition. To further his goals, he began to take plays out of his father's playbook. You know, the ones that caused the civil wars. He created a large army without the means to pay for it, dismissed parliaments, issued decrees that were considered unconstitutional, the whole nine yards. At the same time as Mary was celebrating her pregnancy, James made really his greatest mistake. At this highly tense time, he issued the Declaration of Indulgence, which decreed blanket religious toleration. When this was opposed by seven senior clerics, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, he went in for a pound and had them all arrested and thrown into the tower. When they were sent to trial, the barge taking them to court was cheered on by massive crowds. During the trial, there were demonstrations and bonfires where the Pope was burned in effigy. And to make things worse, in a shocking turn of events, the bishops were acquitted, casting a fatal blow on James's authority. Taking advantage of the situation, seven other nobles, now known as the Immortal Seven, again because history is written by the victors, wrote to the Prince of Orange and committed explicit treason by inviting him to invade, depose James, and establish a free parliament. But they also make the following accusation. Quote, And we must presume to inform your highness that your compliment upon the birth of the child, which not one in a thousand here believes to be the Queen's, hath done you some injury, the false imposing of that upon the princess and the nation being not only an infinite exasperation of people's minds here, but certainly 
being one of the chief causes upon which the declaration of your entering the kingdom in a hostile manner must be founded on your part, although many other reasons are given on ours. The birth of James Francis Edward Stuart, or Prince James as I will hereafter call him, is the most contentious royal birth in English history. I've already talked about what was at stake with this pregnancy, nothing less than the religious future of England. Everyone knew how desperate the king and queen were to have a son, and so their political opponents were on high alert for any funny business that might be going on. As I've said already, at the head of those doubting whether Mary was pregnant at all was her stepdaughter, Anne, Princess of Denmark. Here is one account written by a contemporary historian who, full disclosure, was no friend of the king. It was soon observed that all things about her person were managed with a mysterious secrecy into which none were admitted but a few papists. She was not dressed nor undressed with the usual ceremony. Prince George told me that the princess went as far in desiring to be satisfied by feeling the motion after she said she was quick as she could go without breaking with her and she had sometimes stayed by her even indecently long in mornings to see her rise and to give her her shift but she never did either. She never offered any satisfaction in that matter by letter to the Princess of Orange, nor to any of the ladies of quality in whose word the world would have acquiesced. It was just considered too convenient that Mary would just happen to get pregnant after visiting a fertility shrine. She seemed suspiciously healthy throughout the pregnancy, according to some, though other sources disagree. And then, when the birth actually occurred, further questions were raised. Princess Anne had endeavoured to keep close to the Queen, to keep an eye on proceedings, but James was born about a month premature, meaning that Anne, who was away from the court, missed it. Again, how very convenient. There was also the fact that everyone who had witnessed the birth was a Catholic or in the King or Queen's party. Their theory was that there was no baby, and that there never had been. Mary had never been pregnant. That was why neither Princess Anne nor any other good Protestant woman had been permitted to touch Mary's pregnant belly. Instead, another baby, an imposter, was brought secretly into the Queen's chambers, hidden in a warming pan. Hence the nickname given to James, the warming pan baby. Some went further. There were actually two warming pan babies. The first was round-faced with black eyes, but something happened to him, and so he was replaced by another, with a long face and blue eyes. One person swore that he had seen a dead baby in the nursery, only to return and find a healthy one. A surgeon claimed to have left a mark on the baby, only to find it gone when he next saw him. The swirling rumours were constant and ever-shifting. Now, at the outset, I need to tell you that I am 100% sure that this is all totally fake news, if you'll forgive the phrase du jour. I have seen absolutely no evidence to convince me that this birth was anything other than above board. While it was all very helpful timing for James and Mary, it is far more convenient for Protestants to place some justification for their rebellion and treason on a dodgy birth. James's birth presented a huge existential threat to them, and they knew that this was a great rod with which to beat the king and queen. So who was present at the royal birth? What happened? Well, normally we would have absolutely no idea, but in this case we have a ton of evidence because all of the controversy generated a lot of paperwork. Now, we already know Anne was leading the charge here, but crucial to everything that is about to happen is her sister, Princess Mary of Orange. Now, you may remember her from the last episode. She had previously been on good terms with her stepmother. 
They were close in age and had been very friendly even after she'd been married off to Prince William of Orange and left England for the Dutch Republic. But that's before James had become king. That's before he enacted some of his ill-thought-out policies regarding religious toleration. Before he began to badger his daughter regarding her own religious beliefs. Before he threw the seven bishops in jail. Before English nobles started to come to the door of herself and her husband William to ask for their help in return for the throne. A generous view of Mary posits that she was a very pious woman, and so she found it impossible to reconcile the fact that her Protestant God had blessed her Catholic stepmother with a much longed-for son, while denying her that joy. There was only one answer, it must be a fraud, and the only thing to do was to expose it and overthrow her lying, ungodly father. There is also a less generous view that thinks this is all just realpolitik, a convenient excuse to claim the throne for herself and her husband. But another reason has also been posited, a combination of vicious jealousy and grief. As I said a few times, the children and grandchildren of Charles I and Henrietta Maria had appalling luck when it came to giving birth to children. Both Princess Mary and Princess Anne had been blighted by this already. Mary had suffered two miscarriages early on in her marriage and had not managed to get pregnant again. Indeed, she never would. Anne had been married for a shorter period of time, but she had already suffered a stillbirth and then lost a daughter just shy of her second birthday, only a few months before the birth of Prince James. Perhaps all that's about to happen is simply down to two princesses seeking revenge on a stepmother who had dared to have the temerity to have a healthy child when they could not. Now, to me, that seems rather like an overly misogynistic view. I tend to follow a combination of the earlier two views. From a vantage point on the continent, Mary had questions that she wanted answered. 18 of them, to be precise, and she sent them all over to her sister Anne and urged her to get some answers, which she did. All of this survives to this day, making this a truly remarkable source of information. It gives us an amazing window into the birthing chamber, into what happens when a queen gave birth. I've put a link to all of this in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. As usual, I'll interject with a little analysis every now and again, as appropriate. 1. Whether the Queen desired at any time any of the ladies, in particular the Princess of Denmark, to feel her belly, since she thought herself quick or of lat. I have never heard anyone say they felt the child stir, but I am told Lady Sutherland and Madame Mazarin say they had felt it at the beginning. Mrs Dawson tells me she has seen it sir, but never felt it. 2. Whether the milk, that is, as is said, was in the Queen's breasts, was seen by many or conducted in a mystery. I never saw any milk, but Mrs Dawson says that she had seen it upon her smock, that it began to run at the same time as it used to do for her other children. All these women here are all known to be close associates of the Queen, though in many ways that shouldn't be that surprising, as one would expect members of her bedchamber and staff to be close to her. Mary goes on. 3. Whether the astringents that the Queen is said to have taken were taken by her openly, or if a mystery was made of that. What doctors were consulted about the Queen before and since her being at the birth. Whether Dr. Waldegrave alone, or others with him, knew the particulars of her condition all along. For what they call restringing draughts, I saw her drink two of them, and I don't doubt she drank them frequently and publicly before her going to the bath. Dr. Waldegrave was very earnest with Sir Charles Scarborough to be for her going thither, but he was so fierce against it that there was another consultation of doctors called. Sir Charles Scarborough, Dr. Waldegrave, Weatherby, Brady and Brown. 
After that, there was only Sir Charles Scarborough and Dr. Wardegrave, and for the first, I believe, he knew but little, excepting once when she was to be let blood, and when she was to have gone to Windsor. Then some of the others were called in to give their opinions. 4. Whether the treating of the Queen's breasts for drawing back the milk and the giving her clean linen has been arranged openly or mysteriously. Quote, All I can say in this article is that once in the discourse, Mrs. Bromley told Mrs. Roberts one day, Mrs. Rogers, Lady Sutherland's daughter, came into the room when Mrs. Mansell, the Queen, was putting off her clouts. And she was very angry at it because she did not care to be seen when she was shifting. So you will have noticed that there is a theme here developing of Princess Mary wanting to know who knew what, had seen what, had felt what. Were these people Catholics and close to the Queen? Or were there others whom the princesses could trust to be honest? Okay, the next few questions are very important, as they concern the birth itself and its immediate aftermath. Again, Mary is on high alert for any sign of a cover-up, and wants to know if her father and stepmother had engineered a situation where a cover-up was possible, and if anything out of the ordinary had happened. 5. At what hour did the Queen's labour begin? She fell in labour about 8 o'clock. At what hour was the notice of it sent to the King? Whether the King did not lie at St James's, or with the Queen that night, or if he was gone back to Whitehall? She sent for the King at that time, who had been up for a quarter of an hour having lain with her that night, and was then dressing. 7. Whether upon sending to the king the thing was let fly over St. James's and Whitehall, or if the notice was sent secretly to the king. As soon as the king came, he sent for the queen dowager and all the privy council. After that, it is known all over St. James. 8. Whether did the king send about for the privy councillors, or if he sent for those that were by accident at Whitehall? Most of the other men that was there, I suppose, were at the king's rising. 9. At what time came the king with the council into the queen's chamber? They came into the room presently after the queen dowager came, which is about half an hour before she was brought to bed. 10. Whether there was a screen at the foot of the bed between it and the rest of the room, or not? There was no screen. She was brought to bed in the bed she lay in all night, and in the great bedchamber as she was of her last child. 11. Whether did any woman, besides the confidence, see the Queen's face when she was in labour? And whether she had the looks of a woman in labour? Who was in the room, both men and women? What time they came in, and how near they stood? The foot curtains of the bed were drawn, and the two sides were open. When she was in great pain, the King called in haste for my Lord Chancellor, who came up to the bedside to show he was there, upon which the rest of the Privy Councillors did the same thing. Then the Queen desired the King hide her face with his head and periwig, which he did, for she said she could not be brought to bed and have so many men look upon her, for all the council stood close at the bed's feet, and Lord Chancellor upon the step. Just a side note here. Now, I've never given birth, obviously, and nor have I ever witnessed one firsthand, but I've watched enough medical dramas to know that generally you want to keep the number of people in the room to a minimum, so as to avoid, you know, making things even more difficult and stressful for the mother. That is a lot of old white men to be in a room while a woman with a long history of losing children was giving birth. What I do like here, though, is that sign of affection between James and Mary, where she asks him to be close to her and avoid looking at all those bystanders. Twelve. How long was the king talking to the privy councillors after the child was carried into the next room, before he went to look upon it? 
And in this, as well as in the other questions relating to the point of time, a critical answer as near to a minute as it is possible is desired. Who took the child when he was born? As soon as the child was born, the midwife cut the navel string because the afterbirthrin did not follow quickly. And then she gave it to Mrs. Labadie, who, as she was going by the bedside, crossed the step to carry it into the little chamber. The king stopped her and said to the privy councillors that they were witnesses. There was a child born and bid them to follow it into the next room and see what it was, which they all did. For till after they came out again, it was not declared what it was. But the midwife had only given a sign that it was a son, which is what had been done before. 13. What women, or one sort or another, were present? And if no woman was called in to hold the queen, and if the king did not use to be near the bed and hold the queen, as in former labours? Now this question is interesting for a couple of reasons. First, we find out that, in past pregnancies, James would come in and hug the queen after she gave birth, which frankly sounds adorable, and quite unlike what most of the kings in our story would have done. But also, Princess Mary seems to implicitly trust the testimony of women here, much more than she did that of the men present, which we can tell as she asked so quite explicitly. Here is Anne's answer. When the Queen Dowager came into the room, she went up to the bedside, but after that stood all the while by the clock. There was in the room, and now she goes on to list a ton of names that won't mean anything to you, so I won't give you all of them, just to give you a flavour, you have the Lord Chancellor, Lord Privy Seal, the two Chamberlains, and the Lord President, along with 18 high-ranking male nobles and 20 female nobles, along with the assorted priests and servants that you might expect. Back to Anne. All these stood as near as they could. Lady Bellasis gave the midwife the receiver, and Mrs Dawson stood behind a Dutch chair that the midwife sat upon to do her work. All the time the child was parted, I do not hear of anybody that held the queen except the king, and he was upon the bed by her all the while. 14. Whether, in any former labour, the queen was delivered so mysteriously, so suddenly, and with so few being called for. Her labour never used to be so long. 15. If many observed the child's limbs being slender at first, and their appearing all of a sudden to be round and full, who was about it, rockers and a dry nurse? If everybody's permitted to see the child at all hours, dressed and undressed. So here Mary's dressing the fact that there were conflicting reports of what the baby looked like after he was born. Again, who saw him, for how long, and when. I never heard what you say of the child's limbs. As for seeing it dressed or undressed, they avoid it as much as they can, by all that I have seen and heard. Sometimes they refuse almost anybody to see it. And, that is, when they say it is not well, and methinks there is always a mystery in it, for one does not know whether it be really sick, and they fear one should know it, or whether it is well, and they would have one think it is sick, as the other children used to be. In short, it is not very clear anything they do, and for the servants, from the highest to the lowest, they are all papists. 16. Is the Queen fond of it? The Queen forbid Lady Powers to bring the child to her before any other company, but that, they say, she used to do to her other children. I dined there the other day when they said it had been very ill of a looseness, and it really looked so. Yet, when she came from prayers, she went to dinner without seeing it, and after that played at Comet, and did not go to it after she was put out of the pool. 17. How Mrs Dawson, Mrs Bromley, stands with the Queen. Which of her bedchamber women are most in favour? I believe none of the bedchamber women have any credit with the Queen, but Mrs Chirine. But they say Mrs Bromley has an interest with the King. 18. Were no ladies sent for? And who was sent for? 
And at what time was the message sent to the Queen Dowager? Also, at what time she came? I don't hear any ladies were sent for, but the Queen's own, and they were called presently after the Queen Dowager. She came a quarter after nine, where she stood, and at what time she was sent for, I have already told you. So, while all of this was going on, what was Queen Mary up to? Well, after giving birth, Mary remained confined for a month, as was standard practice at the time. The first few days and weeks were very stressful for her. After initially appearing healthy, the newborn Prince James became sick, and the festivities ordered to celebrate his birth had to be temporarily halted while everyone anxiously waited what would happen. Fortunately, slash unfortunately, depending on your view, the boy survived. While Mary was recuperating in bed, she wrote out a number of letters, letting everyone know about the marvellous news. And since she believed she was on good terms with her elder stepdaughter, for whom she had the affectionate nickname of Lemon, she wrote her a letter, unaware of her suspicions. This letter was dated at the 6th of July, so a few weeks after the birth. Quote, The first moment that I have taken a pen in my hand since I was brought to bed is this, to write to my dear Lemon. I do not hope two months ago to have had all well over by this time, for I came a month sooner than I reckoned, which mistake I thought I would not make, counting as I used to do. If my child had not been bigger and stronger than any that I ever had, I should have thought that I had come before my time. But soon she caught wind of the princess's suspicions about the birth of her son, and this came as quite a blow. Remember, by suspecting this, Queen Mary was being accused of committing the most horrific crime, faking a pregnancy, buying another woman's child, and stealing the throne. This was no small thing. She accused her stepdaughter of turning on her, of betraying her. In one letter, she said to the princess, quote, I am further confirmed in the thought I had before, that you have for him the last indifference. The king has often told me with a great deal of trouble, that often he has mentioned his son's letters to you, you have never once answered anything concerning him. Mary's response was stone cold. All the king's children will have as much affection and kindness from me as can be expected from the children of the same father. It is clear from that point on that she believed the conspirators and was fully backing the immortal seven and her husband's plans to invade England. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.